Well, good morning, everybody. It is uh, great to be together. It's exciting, isn't it, to see just some of the things that God is, is doing in our midst. It's a blast uh, for us to be a part of it. Well, today we're in part two of our series called Love Can. And what's exciting about this series, as many of you know, we're doing this series in conjunction with about 40 other churches in our city, teaching through the exact same passage even this morning. And so we're excited about the, kind of the unifying factor in that, but also the, what it's around. That unity is around us saying to ourselves and to our churches, Lord, we want to do everything we can to help bring the truth of the gospel, the life-changing message of Jesus Christ to more and more people uh, within our city. And so I encourage you, as you see those words, love can, I think I said this last weekend even, but would you pray for other life-giving churches in the city when you see those words around our city? Maybe you're out at West Road, there's a pop-up uh, store out there all around love can. You're seeing those, uh, those words on cars at different places. But would you just take a moment and would you pause and would you pray for other churches, not only for the city and people in it, but would you pray, God, would you bless and would you really just impact uh, that church and would you allow them to have a great, a great influence in the city? And so this morning, I'd love for us to pray together before we get into what I think is an incredible passage of scripture. And then, um, but as we do that, as we pray, um, let's pray for one of our neighbor churches um, even this morning. So yeah, would you, would you join me and, and we'll pray together. Lord, thank you for the city that we live in, Lord. It is a privilege, and uh, Lord, we are uh, truly, uh, all of us here today, Lord, we are blessed people, and Lord, we just want to say to you this morning, um, we want to invite you, we want to ask you, Lord, would you do a great work in our city, and Lord, even as we think of other churches in the city, Lord, this morning, we're going to, we pray for the church that's just across L Street from us, King of Kings, and God, we pray for them, we pray that you would use that church in significant ways, Lord, we pray that you would... Um, bless and keep their staff and their volunteer teams. We pray for Pastor Mark and his leadership. And Father, we thank you for them. And, um, and then, Lord, as we think about not only our city, but as we think about even this morning, the different ways that we get to be a part of your work far from this city, in places like the Dominican Republic and Zambia and, and in the Middle East, Lord, we pray this morning that whether it's a pastor that's being trained or whether it's a new city that's being reached or, Lord, whether it's a refugee that's just getting food, um, Father, we pray that you would do things that are beyond what we can imagine. God, things that are beyond our thoughts, that things that, that were bigger and much, much, much beyond our own efforts, God. And so, Lord, thank you, Lord, that you do those things, and thank you that we can join you in them. And so we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, as I said, we're going to be in a passage of Scripture that's incredible. It's one of the most well-known. Um, it's one of maybe the most even taught passages in the Scriptures. It's, you could say that it's a wildly popular passage in Scripture. Uh, there have been compelling books that have been written right around the storyline of this passage. There have been movies that have been, that have been made right along with the plot of this movie. As you read this story, I think you're going to find that it's concise, but right along with being concise... It's one of those passages that's extremely compelling. When Jesus told this story that we're going to read from Luke chapter 15, his intention was this, his intention that as we read this story, that we would get a good picture of the kind of God that he is. That we would read this story and we would learn about his character, that we would, we would learn about the level of relationship that God, the God of the entire universe, invites each and every person in this room into. It's phenomenal. But I want to say this to you. Make sure this morning of this, make sure that you don't just read this as a story. Make sure that you, as you look at the text this morning, make sure that you see it as this illustration that vividly paints this picture of God. That it helps you understand who he is. That it really helps you understand this morning the character of God, what God is like. 
you should be able to walk away this morning and to have a very good picture, not only of who God is, but also to be able to have a very good idea of how you can choose to respond to him. What kind of God is he? What does he invite you into? I know on the personal front for me, when I first heard the teachings from Luke chapter 15, they were very impactful because not only did I see Jesus Christ in a way I had never seen him before, and I coupled not only Luke 15 but other passages that say the same kinds of things about the God that we worship, but it was also one of those times in my life that I began to see myself differently. You'll be able to see yourself somewhere in this story this morning. And this is really important because what you believe about God, the things that you believe about God directly impact your relationship with him. And then your relationship with God directly impacts how you think of yourself, which impacts how you go through your life. And so this is huge this morning. And so I want to begin with you. We're going to start in, in Luke chapter 15. But first I want to show you what's the audience like that Jesus is talking to. This group of people that he's sharing with. Because one thing is for sure, Jesus is not just talking aimlessly in Luke 15. He has a very specific audience in mind and he has a very specific purpose by which he's teaching. Um, so it says this in Luke 15, verse uh, 1 and 2. It says, now the tax collectors and the sinners, so think group 1. The tax collectors and sinners, they were all gathering around together to, to, to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, think group 2, they muttered... This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And so here's the scene. It's not hard to imagine, but really, really get into it. Really get your mind wrapped into it. Because what's happening here, they're describing a scenario that would have been completely unacceptable in their culture. But it was the perfect setup. It was a setting that was filled with not only, in their minds, a lot of conflict. But you could say that the setting that there, it's being described here, it was poised for drama. It was not acceptable at all to them. But we know this about Jesus Christ. Jesus had not only a way of inviting people that were shunned in, the, in his society, the outcasts and, and those that were broken. He had not only a way of just kind of inviting them into his life, but he had a, a way of bringing them into the core of his life, right into the, the sphere of his greatest influence. We see this over and over again. But verse 2, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they couldn't stand it. They were fed up with Jesus that he was doing this. It made them mad. And they knew that, okay, Jesus, if you're willing to eat a meal with these people, you're making a big statement. Because in their culture, if you were invited into somebody's home to eat a meal with them, what they were saying to you by inviting you in was this. I invite you into a deeper level of relationship. And these people, when they watched Jesus doing this, it bothered them. Their own self-righteousness became their greatest enemy. And so that's the context. And it's important, and you'll see why it's important as we get into the story. But that's the audience that Jesus is writing to. Now the title of the story that we're looking at is called The Lost Son. Or sometimes it's referred to as The Prodigal Son. And many scholars, you could say, many pastor types feel like this is a really bad title for this story. Because yes, what we're going to read is the story of a runaway son. But it's not just the story of a runaway son. It's also the story of an older brother. Two sons, actually. And there's two or three times that both of the sons are mentioned. But even more than the story being about these two sons, it's about the father. In just 20 verses, we see 12 different times that the father is mentioned. We're going to get a picture this morning, not just of two sons, but we're going to get this incredible picture of who this father is. Look up the word uh, prodigal in the dictionary. 
It's described as someone who does this. They express reckless or you could even say on an extravagant scale that they're kind of living recklessly, extravagantly. Some would say that this story shouldn't be called the story of the prodigal son, but it should actually be called the story of the prodigal father. Because what we're going to see is this, this over-the-top, this extravagant love that this father demonstrates. And so let's dive in. It says this in verse 11. So Jesus continued, this is the, the third of, in this little, uh, this little trilogy of, of stories. He says, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, right away, this is kind of scene one of a two-part two two story. Right away, you can't miss the mood of what's happening here. Because if you would have been there, if you would have been in the audience that day, this statement, Father, give me my share of the estate, would have been shocking. It would have been so unacceptable. It would have been a slap right in the face. It would have been huge. It was like saying this, the relationship that we have is not important, but the money that you have is what I want. It would have been like saying, I'm tired of faking it, Dad. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm sick of walking this road, but I want my share of what you've saved for me. It'd be like saying this, Dad, if I had my preference, you'd be dead. It would actually make this a lot easier. But you must be taking your vitamins because you're still alive. You seem to be pretty healthy. And so since you're not going to make this any easier, I'm just going to be real direct with you, Dad. I don't want relationship with you, but I do want what you have. I do want what you've saved for me. One scholar put it like this, the scholar who understood these times and the culture well. He said, to ask for an inheritance while the father was still alive was to wish him dead. It was blatantly saying, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine an adult child of yours looking you in the face and saying, I don't want relationship with you anymore. I don't want you to call me. I don't want to receive a text or an email from you. I don't want you to see your grandkids. I don't want any part of you. But I do want what you and mom have saved. And since I know you're not ready to give that to me, I'd like for you to liquidate your assets so that it can come in the form of cash. I don't want you, but I do want what you saved for me. Imagine that. That would be heartbreaking. I don't even want to say that with my kids in the room, right? I mean, that, I mean, imagine the level of pain that that would cause anyone, whether you have kids or not, you can feel that text. And in a very graphic way, Jesus, big picture here, guys, Jesus is showing us, this is a picture of what sin is like. Sin is like this. Sin is like saying, you know what, God, I don't want your ways, I don't want to follow your rules, I don't want to come under, here it is, I don't want to come under your leadership. God, I want to do this my way. At the core of who I am, Lord, you are not going to rule my heart. I am going to do my own thing. I'm in charge. God, I'm dead to you. That is at the core of what sin is. But even more shocking than the son's request is the father's response. It says this. It says, so he divided his property between them. Now, this was a big deal. This was a huge surprise 
Because according to Levitical law, what this father could have done was had his son stoned to death because his son was so disgraceful and his son was so rebellious. And so for him to say, and just to go about it and say, yes, okay, I divide my property between them, it was huge. The expectation in that culture that day was that this son would be outcast. At best, he would be outcast. What the expectation was is that he would even be killed. First takeaway this morning, I think we're gonna, I'm going to give you four. Maybe jot these down. Here it is. Here's the first one. God doesn't abandon us even in our greatest rebellion and rejection. God doesn't abandon us even in the midst of the most blatant form of kind of rebellion and rejection that you could give him. Know this. Before anyone in this room ever called out to God, God was calling out to us. He was remaining faithful to us. He was remaining loving to us. Verse 13 puts it like this. This is what happened next. Not long after that, the younger son, he went out. He got together all that he had. And he set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth on the wild living. He had a ball. Verse 14. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to to be in need. And so he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. Now, in Jewish culture, this was the bottom of the bottom. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Takeaway number two, here it is. God uses our circumstances to draw us back. God uses our circumstances to draw us back. The son, he goes out. He has one heck of a time. He gets into deep sin, and he's having fun with it. And sin is fun, isn't it, for a season. It has a shelf life, doesn't it? And so the son realizes that. He realizes, okay, I'm broke. I'm afraid. I'm hungry. I'm at the bottom. What will I do now? Isn't it true that God sometimes uses those circumstances where we feel like, just like the son did in that moment, I'm at the bottom. You ever had that feeling where you've just noticed that, wow, while I'm at the bottom, I tend to meet God there quite often? Have you ever had that experience? Maybe you got over leveraged financially. Maybe your marriage is in a place of crisis. Maybe you got fed up or maybe you got caught in a secret sin that you kind of had going in your life. But here's the thing, what can seem like your worst moment, God can use it for your greatest opportunity. What can seem like the very bottom, God can show up in that place because God uses our circumstances. Know this about your circumstances, they're not random. They're not random. God can use those. And he is not absent from you, even in the midst of if your circumstances have taken you to the greatest place of your rebellion and your rejection. In that place, not random, God can meet you. Brilliantly, C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain at the bottom. Verse 17, keeping going in the story, says this. It says that when he, this younger son, key phrase, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death? I will go and I will set out and I will go back to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went back to his father. Went back to his father. Now imagine that. And then this is what happens though uh, while all that's happening. But while he was, keywords, 
still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He's still a long way off, which tells us what? The father, what was he doing? He wasn't just busy doing other things. He was looking for his son. God always is pursuing you. That father was waiting. He was looking, looking at the horizon. Is he coming today? I wonder if he'll show up. My son, is he coming? And then it says this, that when he saw him, he was filled with compassion for him. Have you ever had one of your children maybe go through a season or maybe just an instance? They got bullied at school or they didn't make the team or, or they're struggling with an addiction or whatever it is. But you saw your son or daughter going through a hard time. And what did it do to you? That word compassion, it basically means this. It broke the heart of the father. You're, you can't help but having your heart broke as a parent when you see a child of yours who's hurting. And so what did the father do? This is beautiful. It says this. It says that he ran to his son and he lavishly, he threw his arms around him and he, he kissed him. Now this would have been entirely countercultural. This would have been unacceptable. Because in order for this father to have run out to get his son, which, by the way, in that culture, grown men did not run. Because they had to pull up their robe, and then they had to expose the front of their legs in order to run so they didn't trip. And that was looked at as something you just didn't do in that culture. It was a disgrace. Grown men did not act like this at all. But the emotions of his love for his son had overpowered him at this point. It was extravagant love. It was reckless. It was prodigal love. It captured the moment. Our youngest son had a music concert on, on Friday at his school. And, and as the parents were all sitting in the gym waiting for the kids to come in, I began to notice how different parents were reacting when they saw their kids come in. And I saw this one, one group of parents, they, they stood up as soon as they saw their son or daughter, and they started waving frantically at them. And I just thought to myself, I started to kind of mock them, honestly, mentally, and I thought, didn't they just leave their house this morning? I mean, have they never seen their kids before? I mean, why so excited, you know? Like, what's their passion about, you know? And, and they're taking pictures like they've never seen the child walk before, you know? And, and I was thinking to myself, what are they going to do when the kid actually starts singing, you know? Like, they are frantically, like, crazy parents, you know? And so I'm watching this all unfold, and I looked at Christine, and I said, I said, oh, there's Easton's, uh, Easton's teacher. And then, you know, four or five kids later, in comes Easton. And we both saw him at the same time. And without thinking twice, we both stood up, and we started frantically waving at him. She started taking pictures, and, and I just thought to myself, what are we doing we're just, like, we're just like these parents that I was just mocking. And, and, then, and then he made eye contact with us, which is like a big reward for a crazy parent, right? And so he makes eye contact with me, and I go like this to him. Like, like what does that even mean, right? Like, you're the champ. You're going you're gonna to sing. You know, I mean, I don't even know what to say about it. Foolish. Totally undignified. Finally, we sat down. I, I like looked at Christine, and I was like, we should sit down. Like, well. <laughs> but here's the thing. I saw my son. I saw my son. I don't know what else to say. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, the reason the father could so extravagantly embrace and kiss his son when he returned is because he had been embracing him in his mind since the day he had been gone. 
You know, I thought this morning there are some of you that God thinks of you that way this morning. You have been gone. You have been away from him. And his heart and his mind pictures you coming back. You are his son. You are his daughter. Takeaway number three, here it is. Jot this down. God's love never grows weary. It never grows weary. If you open your heart, even a sliver to God, God is telling you this. My love does not grow weary for you. God never says, I've spent all my love and grace. I'm out. I'm off the clock. God never speaks to us that way. And so then this happens, verse 21, continuing in the story. The son is ready. He's got his speech ready to go. It says, the the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But before this son can even get his speech finished, his father does what he's been planning to do all along. Verse 22, he says, but the father said to his servants, quick. Bring the best robe, like give him the very best, my robe. Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. That was no small deal. That was symbolizing this son has authority. He's not a servant. He's my son. And put sandals on his feet. That was a sign. You had sandals if you had wealth. Give him sandals back. Put him on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. And, and let's have a feast and let's celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Question, where's the shame? Hey, where's that statement? Hey, I knew you'd be back. It's about time. What'd you do with the money? Your clothes don't look as nice as when you left. How are you doing? Do you notice that there's none of that? There is no shame in it. The cross of Jesus Christ bore all the shame, didn't it? I mean, when Jesus Christ bore the sin of mankind and he hung on a cross naked for all to see and he was scorned and he was beaten, he bore all the shame, all the shame that you and I could ever deserve. He bore it. And so this father is making this incredible statement by the way that he's receiving him back. No condemnation. He's just saying to him right off the bat, he's saying it's like this beautiful picture. You can't earn your way into any of this. You can't earn the robe. You can't earn the ring. You can't, surely can't earn the robe, my robe. No, you can't earn any of it. And when God sees you and when you come back, it's like this neon sign saying to us, we don't earn that, but we gladly, we, we blessedly, we receive it. No performance, no dutiful religious activity can bring you any closer to God. But yet his arms are wide open. Such a beautiful picture for those who would walk toward him. And then it says this. It's kind of like scene two, and this is just as impactful. Verse 25 says, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard the music and the dancing. And so he called one of the servants, and he asked him what was going on. The servant said, you're... Your brother has come, he replied, and and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Beautiful. And he says this. He says, the older brother came, became angry and refused, keywords here, to go in. I'm not going in. So his father, those two words, if you underline in your Bible, underline those two. So his father went out and he pleaded with him. 
But he answered his father, Father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf and, and you do that for him. And then, I mean, just imagine just the tension there for him. And then the father says, it's my son, the father said, you are always with me, my presence. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate. We had to. And we had to be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now he is found. What's coming out here so clearly is not only was the younger son lost, but the older brother was just as lost as his younger brother because he was so religious. He was so dutiful. Do you see this? The older brother, remember who Jesus is talking to. The audience of Jesus is religious people. He's making a big statement here. He's saying, yes, the younger son was lost in the rebellion, but yes, older son, you were lost in your pride because you clearly have become nothing like me because your heart should go out to the one who's lost. Son, you've clearly not enjoyed our, my presence, my relationship with you because if you truly had, you would long for your brother to have it as well, son, you've always been home, but you've always been far from me. I think of the older son like this. He was cleaned up on the outside, but his heart was so far from God. You know, you might be able to relate to this. You might be able to relate to the older brother. And maybe you would say, man, I've tried to. I've tried to walk the line and I've tried to even do the religious thing, but it just doesn't grab me. Like, my heart doesn't, like, yes, I'm in. You know, like, you watch people maybe in worship even, and you're like, how are they so into it? Like, what are they, like, what, what, what is it, right? Your heart's never connected. I want to read this to you. This is um, a guy on our staff, John Alford. He, he, he just relates this. I thought he said this so well. He writes this. He says, looking back, he says, I guess you could say that my story has been the journey of the older son. He says, despite all the advantages of growing up in a family that was filled with Christ's love and, and a setting where God was the number one priority in my life early on, he said, I always struggled with this nagging sense of feeling disconnected to God. Can you relate to that? I think I viewed him as a distant boss who just wanted my obedience. That's the older brother. As a conscientious kid, I did my best to please God. I went to a Christian college, but through college, I remember thinking the most important thing to me in the world is that I want to obey. I want to love God. I want him to be at the top of my life, but I have absolutely no heart connection to him. I didn't think that I could honestly say I love him, yet I knew there was much more. A defining moment for me came when I read John Piper's book, Desiring God, and I clearly saw that the Bible commands us to have emotions for God. Convinced that God wanted me to experience satisfaction in him, I made it my life quest to search till I found that. I got my hands on everything I could to help me hear God's voice and to develop this heart of worship. Over a period of years, I began to see my view of God change from this distant boss that always seemed disappointed to a close and personal God who I could hear him speaking into my life every day. And then he writes, I only wish I would not have waited so many years as the older brother who was always serving God, but who was never enjoying him. It's hard to believe how my view of God has been limited 
and how it impacted how I experienced him. Thankfully, God is so much more real to me now. And honestly, I can say I love him. And here's a key statement. He satisfies the deepest parts of me. Last takeaway. Here it is. Takeaway number four. God says to all, come home. Whether you're the older brother or whether you're the younger brother. A couple years ago, I was with our, two of our kids at um, Menards, and we were doing this project. I don't know if you ever have these, but whenever we do a, a project around the house, I think I'm going to go to Menards or Home Depot or Lowe's like twice, and then I go like 25 times, you know what I'm saying? And so we were there like for the whatever time of the weekend, and, and I remember walking in with the two boys, and they were getting pretty comfortable with the store because we'd been there so much. And, and, and uh, so the older one, who was at the time eight or nine, he said to me, he said, is it okay if me and Easton, Easton was three or four maybe, he said, if we, is it okay if we just go over to the other part of the store while you figure out what you need to do? And I said, yeah, that'd be fine, you know, and I can tend to be a little too much, too comfortable with distance from my kids in that way. And um, this has happened a lot. And, uh, and, and, so, and so they went and, and I finished what I needed and it took a while. And, and so then I went to get them because they hadn't come to get me. And so I went looking for them. I couldn't find them anywhere. And so I, I did one lap around the store, which takes a while, and I couldn't find them still. And I did another lap, and as I'm taking the second lap, I'm thinking to myself, oh, this is going to be a fun call home. Uh, Christina, sorry, uh, I lost the boys. Um, yeah, you, I mean, you don't want to make that phone call, right? There's nothing good about that. And then, and then as I made the second lap, I thought to myself, how horrible would it be if I have to get in my truck without the boys? And it was, just, it was starting to bother me. Made the third lap around the store, didn't know what else to do. Went to the front and I said to the gal, and I'm like, like getting up tight now. And I was, like, I was like, hey, I've lost my boys. I've looked really hard. Um, like I need to do next step here. And so she got on the intercom, code Adam, you know, which is like, you know, the big deal, right? Missing child. And so then she gets on the intercom though and she says, would Aiden and Easton dart? I love it when they put the last name in for the whole, you know. Would Aiden and Easton dart, you know, please come to the front of the store. And so I've stood at the front of the store for several minutes. And finally I see them coming. And Aiden is holding his little brother's hand and they're walking and, and Aiden looks a little bit afraid. And so I walk up to him and I, wow, where have you guys been? I'm so glad to see you. I give him a hug. And Aiden looks at me and he goes, he goes, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, you know, and said something about his brother. And, and then he said, I said, no, no, it's okay. I said, I'm just glad to see you. And he said, are we in trouble? He said, I'm sorry. And I said, no, no, you're not in trouble. He said, I said, I'm just really worried. I'm really glad you're here. And then I thought about it a little bit and I looked at him. I said, wait, I said, you're not in trouble unless you tell your mom, you know? And I said, I said, do you understand me? Like, this is just us, right? And all of Menards and whatever, you know? And here's the thing. The greatest truth, please don't miss this this morning. The greatest truth is that God says to you, come home. Come home. If you're the older brother and religion to you is just a waste of your time, you are right along with Jesus Christ because that's what he said about it. But he invites you into a relationship where you can know him, where you can be known. If you're the younger son and the thing that's kept you away from God is this consistent rebellion. There are two types of people that never experience the good news of Jesus Christ. They're the rebellious because they're, they're having fun. And that fun will run out. And then there's the proud who are just too good. They're just, I can do it myself and I'll walk the straight line. If you're the rebellious, would you come home before maybe even you get to the bottom of the bottom? 
And if you're the older brother this morning, would you say to yourself this? Would you say, God, I want you for you. I want my heart to connect with you. Because know this, you are just as far from the father as the rebellious son. And he is just as excited to see you. And he longs for you to come home. And so this morning, I just want to ask you, who do you relate more to? An older brother? Or maybe it's the younger younger one today. And then ask yourself this key question. Have you had the experience where you have said, I want to come home? Because when you do that, and you can do that so simply, you just call out to this good God that we have, and you just say to him, I realize I've been gone. The son, I love it. What, he, what was that phrase again, guys? He said, it says, he came to his senses. He had this moment where he looked ahead of his life and he said, I would be better to be a servant at home than to be a slave out here. And what's beautiful, though, is God says to you, you don't have to be a slave over here. You can be a son and you can be a daughter of the living God. And so I'm going to pray for us this morning now. And, and I just want to invite you, whether you're the older or the younger, would you take that invitation to come home? So, yeah, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for stories like this that help us see you as the Father that you are. And um, this morning, we just want to say to you, God, we want to come home. Maybe you're here today and you would say, you know what, I'm, I am the younger son. I have been giving God the hand all of my life, or I'm in a season at least where I am. I've said to you, God, I don't want you as the leader on my life. I don't want your ways. I don't want your rules. I don't trust your, my future with you. And maybe this morning, would you just say to him, I am at the bottom and I come home. And just as that vivid picture that Jesus gave us, you can experience, you can even just imagine right now, the Father embraces you. And then maybe you're here this morning and you say, no, I'm the older brother. We don't know how the parable ends. We don't know how that story ends, actually, but you can write an ending for yourself today. A story like John's. Where you say, you know what, God, not only do I want to follow you and serve you, God, but I want to know you. And today I latch on to the fact that you know me at the deepest level of who I am. Lord, thank you for these truths. Lord, thank you for the kind of God that you are. And we pray now that you'd be honored as we worship you in this place. We pray in Christ's name.